Hey, good morning, Grace. Thanks for being here, and, and thanks for joining us uh, via the internet. We really appreciate everyone participating in any way you can, especially during this difficult time. I'd like to have kind of a difficult time uh, contextual talk afterwards. If you would let me do that again, just, I think it's going to be five minutes, okay, after the sermon. So don't tune us out, and you guys can't leave anyway. We're not going to let you, so captive audience, my favorite. Um, this week, we're going to look at the church again. That's where we are in our Bible timeline, and there is nothing like the church. Nothing. There is no thing on earth with the wonder and the power and the beauty and the brilliance, the love, and here's the word, the potential of the church, the bride of Christ. And today I want you to see this, walk away with this. Like We get to be here during the church. I mean, it's taken us... 11 months to get to the place where, you know, a non-Jew is in the game here of salvation history. It took 10,000 years for history to get here, and we get to be here. And this is what you need to know about the church. The church is designed and built to be dangerous. The church is the bride of Christ, and she is dangerous. We're supposed to be that way. We're going to look today at what scholars call the most important event in history, the most important event in history, because this event changed the direction of the church for the good. And this event took place at an extreme expense, at such an expense that God chose to spend that. But you and I, we probably wouldn't. All right, so that's what we're looking at. There's your introduction. You ready to go? All right, the church where we left it, where we were before, is, if, if you remember, is, is, uh, it, is, it is just getting started in, in Jerusalem during Pentecost. And during the first hundred years, just to give you an idea of the power of the church, the first hundred years or so of the church, there has been nothing like it in human history. One scholar wrote this. He said, Never in so short a time has any other religious faith, or for that matter, any any other set of ideas or religious, whether they're religious or political or economic, nothing has had this kind of impact and power without the aid of physical force or social or cultural prestige. Nothing has achieved this kind of command and position in such an important culture as the Roman culture. In other words, when the church got started in those first few years, it had an amazing influence on the culture itself. Now, there's been some religions or some political values or views that have had that kind of influence, but they needed violence. They needed some kind of prestige. And the way the church did it was it loved. It, 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 it swept through the Roman Empire by just being an example of what it was like to be, come like Christ in all of life. And people would just simply watch and observe. And it not only, it didn't submit to the culture, it changed the culture. And then outlived the culture of the Roman Empire. And Rome was just the first of many. The bride, the church, is dangerous. She stood up to and defeated Rome. (laughs) She is meant to do that wherever she goes. You and me, us, we're the church. And we're meant to be dangerous as well. That's what this story is about. It is about the power of the good news, the gospel means, that word literally means good news, the good news of the gospel. 
is like a, an infection, but it is a, for, for soul health and revitalization. It is for, it's like, it's like an infection where people are literally born again. And the infection is to take place by people living a life filled with grace, generously giving their lives away, and other people watching and wanting that. And the infection started like ground zero was Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. That's how it all started. And the plan to infect the entire world, to spread the kingdom of God, which right, the ambition of God, this got started in the Garden of Eden at, in, in Genesis chapter 3 after the fall. This is the, the, the culmination of God's plan here. This is how a revival is supposed to stay, take place, this infectious revival. He, Jesus says that this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, now, you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit, and it has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Okay? And let me explain that. Let me translate that into, like, Texan or whatever, so we can understand those are geographical terms. Okay? Jesus says, look, uh, the Spirit of God is going to come upon you, and you need to be witnesses in Austin and the Travis and Williamson County area, and even, like, Oklahoma. I know, Oklahoma. And then even the uttermost parts of the earth, it's going to make its way around the world. You're going to need to be dangerous. That's how the plan works out. And in the early days of the church, chapters 1 through 5 of the book of Acts, things are famously well. The church is getting along nicely. This baby church is loving. It's, I guess, safety and it's comfort. And there's no plans yet to get into Judea and Samaria and the other most parts of the earth. Nah, maybe we can get around to that. And that's where this story takes place in, 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 in the context of that. And that's why Luke writes this story, is, which is called by another scholar, says these chapters, 6, 7, and 8, these chapters are the hinge of the real life of the early church. This is, Luke gives three entire chapters, two and a half chapters to this event because it's the most important in history, as one author said, right? And, and it's... You look at this, the description that's being used by, by Luke and you can realize the description of our lead player, Stephen, and the, gives an entire chapter to his speech, the longest speech in the book of Acts. Let me tell you about Stephen. You're going to love this man. When Luke describes him, it is so obvious that Luke wants us to enjoy the full character of Stephen. Look at all the adjectives that are used to positive identify this young man. Let's, let's count them. I listed them. When we go through this, we just, we'll just list them. Okay, the, the proposal pleased the whole group, and so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then later on, and Stephen, a man full of the grace of, of God's grace and power. And he did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. He's a man of God. He will be used by God. Next, chapter 6, verse 9 says... Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue, and these men began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. He's very intelligent. Verse 15, all, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently upon Stephen, and they saw that, that his face was like the face of an angel. <laughs> He's beautiful. 
He's the most valuable player. He's the greatest of all time. He is, uh, he's, in, he's first in his class. He's, he's first chair. He's whatever you guys want to, whatever we would call him, he wins all those accolades and he earned them. In the context of the Bible, he is spiritually devoted. He is uh, intellectual. He, under, he can make these arguments that even the Sanhedrin, the religious Jewish leaders at the time, could not answer. He's even handsome. I hate this guy. Uh, no, I love, I love this man. The point is, Stephen is the future of the church. He's a young man, and he has his whole life ahead of him. He has character and intelligence. He has surrendered to the Spirit of God. He is humble. He's in charge of waiting tables, and he's okay with that. He's a beautiful soul. You see there in, in, the, in the middle of chapter 6, it says their opposition arose, and they, they pointed that towards Stephen. And they couldn't find clearly, they can't find anything to, uh, wrong with this person. They couldn't find anything that he's done that would be, you know, even remotely unethical. And so they have to make things up. They just have to accuse him of things that are lies. I'll just read it to you. Opposition rose from the members of the Sanhedrin, and they produced false witnesses to testify. And this is what their testimony was. This fellow over here, he won't stop speaking against the holy place, the, the temple, and against the law. And we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of Moses that he has handed down to us. And when all, this is where that, that angel face thing comes up. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently upon Stephen and when they saw him, his face was like the face of an angel. And now Stephen gives a defense against these lies and accusations against him. And he, he, I love it. It's a whole chapter, so we can't go into it. We're surveying these. He starts his, his defense with speaking of the glory of God. He ends it with talking about the glory of God. He's a man of God. It's a long chapter. It's a good speech. It's the longest speech in, in the book of Acts, and here's what he says. He says, he does, he does a survey of God's salvation history going all the way back and showing how God has used Moses and the temple and, 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 and particularly he's showing how God had been telling the people all along that there would be a Messiah, a promised one coming soon and that his spirit would come. And then Stephen accuses them of this. He says, you guys have missed it. You, you're living in the past and, and, and even the recent present, but God has moved all those things were pointing towards this and you're missing it again. And not only that, this is, um, this is how he ends his speech. This is his climax. He says this, you stiff-necked people, you uncircumcised hearts and, and ears, you are just like your fathers. You were always resisting the Holy Spirit. And, and was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, Jesus. You have received the law that was put into the effect of the angels, but you have not obeyed it. This man is dangerous. And how do they respond? They do not respond well. Here's what they said. And when they heard this, they were furious and they were gnashing their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, look, he said, I see heaven open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Standing 
at the right hand of God. Now, if you know your Bibles, you know that Jesus went to be with the Father to sit, to sit in a place of authority. That's the place of judgment on the, at the right hand of the Father. And it says here, he's standing. He's standing there. And so scholars are like, what, what's happened here? How did... How is Jesus standing? Why is he standing? And, and many will say that the reason Jesus is standing is because that was, that was the posture of someone giving testimony in, for another person. He comes, Jesus Christ comes as a character witness. He's testifying on Stephen's behalf, just like Jesus promised. He said, if you acknowledge me before men, then the son of man will acknowledge you before the angels of God. And here is Jesus standing and saying, I have something to say about this man, Stephen. Others say that the reason Jesus is standing is because he's standing to greet a hero coming home. But here's, here's what happens. God does not intervene in this. God does not stop the craziness from continuing. He allows it to happen. And the people, the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders at the time, it says they put their fingers in their ears, they cover their ears, and they start yelling and screaming. And then they all attack Stephen. They drag him outside the city, and they begin to stone him. And God does not intervene. God does not do a thing to stop it. It says, these are the last words of Stephen. Very similar to the last words of Jesus the Christ. He says, and while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell onto his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then when he had said this, this, he fell asleep. He died. That's Stephen. That is the end of Stephen. The man that was filled with grace and intelligence and beauty and best, humility. He was being used by God. He was surrendered to God's spirit. He he was the future of the church, and he's the first martyr. Maybe it's just me, okay? I'm just going to say what I think. You know, I'm just saying stuff, and maybe you can join in or or throw rocks. You know, uh, it's in the story, so you can do that maybe. Was this necessary? Was it even, doesn't it seem a little excessive to sacrifice someone like this? I mean, some of, you, some of you have played chess, right? I mean, how, would it be a good thing to, I don't know, two moves in, sacrifice your bishop to, to take a pawn? In, kind of in the military context, if, you're, if, if, if the most able and intelligent man on base is Master Sergeant Buck Wilson, okay? And, 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 and you send him out on on patrol or during some special op event and his parachute gets tangled and he dies right when he hits the ground, right before, before it even gets started. Wouldn't you say, that's, that's kind of a waste, isn't it? Maybe, maybe somebody else could have done that. Let me just play it back in a biblical way, okay? Goliath kills the young David. All of the potential, that's, that's the point here. If you, the, the possibilities for this man. Luke has built him up to, for us to see all that he could have been. And nobody knows, nobody knows what could have happened in this man's life. He was such a young man. And what could have been. Nobody knows. God knows. 
God knows. And see, that's the whole point. God does know all that could have been if he would have lived. And God did not intervene. He didn't do anything. He just watched. <laughs> Even Stephen's speech was lost. Nobody in this storyline repents. There's, this is not like Pentecost where 300 or 3,000 people just like flip and they go, okay, I get it. Yeah, you're right. We did crucify the promised one. How do I repent and become one of his? Here's what does happen. Because of Stephen's speech that led to his martyrdom, it is, I think the phrase is, it shattered the glass door that gave like license to persecute and kill the church. To persecute and kill the church. And it all starts with Stephen. And you can just see that throughout Acts. They just keep going back to Stephen and his speech. Look what it says in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And so and Saul was heartily in agreement uh, with putting him to death. And so on that day, great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. And devout men, they buried Stephen, and they were loud in their lamentations over him. I bet they were. They knew him and loved him. But Saul, ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women who would be put into prison, ravaging. This is a uniquely violent word. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's used one time, and the, and the word is in the book of Psalms, and it's talking, it, and it's talking about uh, wild boar grinding up and tearing up uh, a vineyard. And, you know, we, it's not hard for us to imagine that. Many of you have seen videos of feral hogs going through a farm or a ranch, and what before and after Hundreds of thousands of dollars damage. It, it looks like a tornado touchdown. That, that's what ravaging here means. And Paul, Saul, is going through with a license now to go house to house, tearing moms and dads away from their children. And it all starts, it all starts with Stephen. It continues three chapters later in chapter 11 of the book of Acts. It says, and, and those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen. Persecution in connection with Stephen. Now, I mean, you can imagine behind closed doors in that church in Jerusalem, there, there were people that were just like, can we just talk about this? Can we just like talk openly? Give me a microphone. <laughs> Well-meaning people, cautious people, safe people saying, Stephen's speech, was it really necessary? What? To, to call the Sanhedrin, right, to, to be to, saying that they were what, uh, stiff-necked and, and killers of the promised one. It's hotheads, like Stephen, that gets us in this kind of trouble. And now the whole city is against us. We can't do ministry now. We can't do ministry because the city hates us now. And look at the cost. Look at the cost of of what's, what's happened to the houses and the property that people have lost. And look at, look at the cost of families. Look at these children. That now Are we going to all have to raise these children? What are we supposed to do with this? And now we have to live like refugees. We have to run for our lives and live <laughs> scattered, right, in exile. I mean, that would certainly be a perspective in a church meeting after something like this happened. That would be a perspective. And that's what today's talk that's what today's learning time is all about. It is all about perspective because there's other perspectives. 
God has a perspective. God is eternal. And God has an eternal perspective. He is all-knowing. And he tells us what is right and real and true. And, 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 and he needs to tell us what is right and real and true from his eternal perspective. And he has. And he has. And that's why we are so dedicated to the Bible because it is so easy for us to lose perspective and not know, not know what is right. And not, what, not, not know what's even real and what's passing. We don't even know what, what, is, what are we supposed to fear? What are we supposed to value? What really counts? We are so easily deceived. It's so easy to just like look at something like this, like, like this little shadow, you know, in the water. That's a fish. It is not a fish. It's a duck. And perspective tells us the truth. The tech perspective tells us the truth of what is. That's what, that's what God's perspective does. You look, look, at this, look at this little picture here. You look at this and the perspective is, that's a stupid parent. And what's the emotion attached to that? We should fear this thing. But what really the real perspective is, what the truthful perspective is, is that rock isn't dangling over thousands of feet. It's just a foot and a half off the ground. And that's not a stupid parent. That's kind of a cool parent. Okay, that's going to make a Christmas card that's going to rock. Okay, I'm just saying. Change in perspective. You look at this little paint splotch and you... Maybe you get emotionally, you get upset, like somebody spilled some paint. You back up a little bit, change your perspective and say, look, my kid, uh, that's refrigerator art. Good for him or her. Hmm, look at me, I'm a proud parent. You back up a little more and you realize that's beautiful and worth about a half a million dollars. Perspective teaches you what is real and true and valuable and what to fear. And that's what God does. That's, it's all about perspective. And if we don't, if we're not careful and we just look at perspective like too close up, we say, death of Stephen is, is unnecessary. It, it, it was too expensive. It was waste of a life and potential. And God's perspective, that's the point. That's why we read our Bibles. We're trying to get the mind of God, not the words, the mind of God into our minds and change our perspective. Because he, he brings sobriety to so many of our worries. He tells, you know, the things that we fear, he, he consoles. The things we're confused about, he makes sense out of sometimes. And when evil invades our life, the Bible steps in and says, hey, 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 wait a minute. There's more to this story and you're never going to know it this side of the grave. Stephen's death, the church is scattered. The church is scattered. That's what it says over and over again. Galatians 4.4 4 says, In the fullness of time, God sent his son. He had set this up for thousands and thousands of years. He gave, he gave the Greeks a thousand years to unify the language so that everyone would be speaking Greek. And the Romans 300 years to build roads everywhere to get the message out. And it was all set up to go with this great command of go to all the world and share the power of the gospel. And the church, the church stalls before takeoff. She doesn't move out of Jerusalem because she's no longer dangerous. And that's not how she was designed. And that's not how the church works. 
And now, I mean, Jesus' last commandment, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power. Yes, use the power, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. No one leaves Jerusalem. Because everybody wants to be safe, and the church, it can't run on safety. And thank, thank Stephen. Look what happens. It continues, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 4. four. It says, and, and, and now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city in Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And then the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did, they became believers. And so there was much joy in that city. Sure, no one responded to Stephen in his message, but look what happens when Philip leaves the town. Everybody wants to hear this. And they go to Samaria, remember, Oklahoma. Even in Oklahoma, they're responding to this. They're loving it. Scattered. Scattered. Here's what's beautiful about this word scattered. In Greek, it's, one of the, it's kind of related to the word seed. And the idea of scattering seeds. I mean, that's the best part about this is they're scattering the seeds of the gospel everywhere. And the irony is, it is the persecution of the church that is meant to thwart its growth and kill the church when actually it is the persecution of the church that scatters the seed everywhere and causes it to grow. Scattering the church in, this, in the Stephen story makes the church kind of against her will, soft determinism, dangerous again the way she was made. And what happens when she's scattered and dangerous? Much joy, much joy was found in that city. That's why Everett Harrison says, writes this, the people went as missionaries more than refugees. They didn't, go as, they didn't leave Jerusalem as victims. They went with purpose. They realized they got sober and said, wait a minute. This is what we were called to do. This is what the king said to do. Years ago, I went on a, exploratory mission trip with a lot of our leaders to China. And we, we, we had this beautiful dinner with this old saint that had been a, a, was a pastor and had been a pastor in China for decades. Been in prison for much more than 10 years, just in his career. That's what you do there. And he was just telling us about the old days and, and how uh, the early church heart was broken because most of the, the Christian experience was on the east coast of China. And they just couldn't get the message inland. They just weren't permitted to travel, and it's a difficult, uh, it was a difficult at the time. And, he, and then, he, then he just told the story. He says it was Mao Zedong that came in in the 60s, that excessively violent communist leader. And he came in and, and squashed all of the religions, but he, he, the, within the context of the Christian faith, he killed uh, the priests and the pastors and all Christians that they could find. They either burned the churches down or imprisoned or killed these men and women that loved God. And the ones they didn't kill, if they didn't torture them right away, they would send them to camps all over China. Labor camps, inland. And this man, he says, from his perspective, it was Mao Zedong and his persecution that allowed the church to spread west into the inland and even is to the far west outer reaches of China because that's how God works. The church was allowed to be dangerous. That, that, that saint, that perspective, 
He's dangerous. He sees things the way God does. Eternal perspective. Stephen's speech was dangerous, and it changed the church. Stephen's speech and his martyrdom was like the match that lit that church on fire and got them to do what God, what Jesus told them to do, to go to Jerusalem and then to Judea and then to Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. It talks about it in Acts chapter 11. Look at this, look at this. It's us. And now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose from Stephen <laughs> traveled as far as Phoenicia. Okay, that's way beyond Samaria, up the coast. And then Cyprus, which is off the coast. It's an island in the Mediterranean. And then to Antioch, near like the bend in the Mediterranean Sea, speaking the word to none except Jews. And, but in Antioch, in Antioch, they began to speak to Greeks. That's us. That's like every, like, would, would all, let me just say, let me say, uh, um, would, would, would just all the non-Middle Eastern believers in Jesus Christ want to thank Stephen with a big amen? amen? Amen. That's why William Barclay said, the death of Stephen is one of the great events in all of history. Application is obvious. The church is dangerous we were meant to be dangerous. It's where we live. It's where we play best. Tertullian, in, you know, he was a Northern African apologist, uh, and he was directing his comments towards Rome and, and, and their persecutions and their killing of Christians. And he wrote this. This is a famous quote. You might know it. Kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us into dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed is the blood of the Christians. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. It sounds a little bit like we're a weed, doesn't it? Let's go. Let's take this persecution. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ and share in the fellowship of his suffering and in his death. Because Paul was dangerous and he was afraid. He wanted to get in the game. He wanted to play. This, this passage, this story, these two and a half chapters, I needed to hear this so bad this week. I don't know about you. I just needed to hear this. Because becoming like Christ in all of life means becoming dangerous. And the, if you look at church history, the church fails when it gets involved in power or comfort. And it thrives in persecution and for the church to thrive, and for you to thrive, for me to thrive, this is why I, want, I needed to hear this, is, I just needed to hear this, is my passion for Christ needs to be a consuming passion. It needs to be like the prime directive, the desire to be dangerous and not comfortable. I mean, you, like, what would it be like if we interviewed Stephen? Like, you know, again, cynical Matt comes in there and goes with a microphone like, I know what I'm talking about. It's like, man, you had your whole life ahead of you. You had so much potential, all, this, all these things, and you were humble too. And you're so good looking. You were in the prime of your life, in your prime of your life. What in the world? What do you think about that now? And then, with a face of an angel, he would say, the king the king values souls. And whatever the king values, I value. 
Lost coin, lost sheep, lost son. I just wanted to play a part in the kingdom. I'd say, put me in coach. (laughs) I'm ready to play. I'm ready to play. If Stephen was a braggart, he'd say, and did you know that I was greeted by a standing Christ? The king of kings was standing when he greeted me. So there's that. You live a dangerous life, you get a standing greeting. William Borden uh, was a man like Stephen. He was very gifted. Around the 1900s, he graduated from high school. He was in an aristocratic home. And for his high school graduation, probably some of you might have enjoyed this, he got a trip around the world just to enjoy himself before he started at Yale. And in his exploration around the world before he got back to school, he saw the hearts and lives of people in Asia and in Europe and in Africa. And his heart broke. He'd become a Christian in high school under the teachings of D.L. Moody. And he wrote his parents and said, after seeing what I've seen in this trip, I want to be a missionary. And so his parents were hesitant and his friends said, you're throwing your life away. You are the heir of an empire. Don't do this. So he finished Yale and his dad sat him down and said, listen, you can still run the company. It's yours to have. Don't be dumb. And he went on to Princeton School of Theology and graduated with a degree there. And then his dad sat him down again and said, if you leave, you can never come back. You can never have this company and this fortune if you leave. And so he got on a boat to China. And when he was going to China, he realized that he wanted to work specifically with Muslims. And so we went to Egypt to learn Arabic, the language and the customs of the Muslims. And when he was in Egypt, like just a week or so later uh, from arriving, he catches spinal meningitis. And within a month, he's dead. He never spent a single day being a missionary. And because, you know, of his family and all that he had lost and all that he had left, there was a shockwave that went through the world. He was in every major newspaper in America, and people brought their perspectives to that, right? The loss of a fortune, the loss of a beautiful education, the loss of all this potential, the loss of a life. And his parents were given his Bible eventually. And in his Bible, in the margins, written right after he renounced his fortune, he said, no reserve. And then after his dad sat him down and said, I'm cutting you off, you can never come back, he wrote, no retreat. And then Boardman, just days before he died, having never done the fulfillment of all of God's dreams that God had for him, he wrote, No regret. No reserve, no retreat, no regret. But he was not forgotten. Press got a hold of of that value, that perspective, 
and news went out, and it became war. And young men and women had their, who had their whole lives ahead of them began to surrender those. If boardmen could lose, walk away from a fortune, they could walk away from whatever they had. And they started the big chant, you know, no reserve, no retreat, no regret. And because of his death, and it was so inspirational that hundreds, I'm sorry, thousands, oops, thousands upon thousands of young men and women left their ambitions to become happy Americans and went into the mission field. Probably the single greatest missions revival that's taken place in modern American history. Boardman, Boardman was dangerous. And I'll bet he was greeted by a standing Christ. I need to hear this. We were designed to be dangerous. This church was. You and me, we're designed to be dangerous. Are you dangerous? This week, let's just try it. Let's take it for a spin. No reserve. How about you go somewhere and do something and don't hold back? Start a new life where you just say no reserve. Maybe you could choose something that has been a demon in your life that you have never been able to conquer because you always thought you had a place of retreat. How about you say this week, no retreat. No retreat. And then you live just a week like you'll be dead on Saturday. Just pretend you'll be dead on Saturday. And you live this week with no regret. Why don't you be dangerous? Let's be dangerous. Just, let's just try it for a week. Let's just see what happens. It could be a contagion. We could live. Let's say this together as a church. Ready? No reserve, no retreat, no regret. Let's be a dangerous church. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, <laughs> the author and the perfecter of all danger. Oh, we love you so much for being that way. Perfect love casts out all fear. Lord, I, you know, we, we, wonder why, we wonder why life doesn't work because we want life to work safely. We want an adventure without danger. We want obedience without risk. So Lord, I confess uh, my addiction to peace and comfort. I confess my addiction to maybe even the American life and the American dream. Uh, Lord, I ask that, uh, that you would renew my spirit of desiring to do whatever, to go wherever, to be with whomever, whenever, at any cost. Lord, I'd ask that your spirit would speak to us as a church and tell us how to be dangerous would you speak to the saints in this room and that are listening what do I need to do what value what perspective do I have that has to die so I can see things from eternity and desire that kind of life Lord I surrender I surrender make us like that And maybe even like the church, 
in uh, Acts chapter 7 where we, where we pray this ambitious prayer of danger uh, wincingly. And so we would love soft determinism to kick in. Make us, put us in a place where we're dangerous, where we have to choose. It's staring at us. We could live a life with no reserve and no retreat, no regret. We would be that way. Let that be the light that shines. Let us live a life that glorifies you in every way, life and death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Whoo, that could preach, huh? Those are three great uh, chapters. I'd love for you to read them if you would. Uh, chapters, Acts chapters 6, 7, and 8. They're, it changes the world. Hey, I want, I want to uh, just say again, just like just talking as, a, as your pastor and friend and an old guy, I guess. Um, first of all, uh, you know, if you don't know what it's like to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, let's, we got to start there. Don't do dangerous without Jesus. And if you don't know what it means to have uh, the assurance that you are going to spend eternity with him, would you do something? Here's your first act of courage. Like contact someone at... at at the church. You can contact them with the online contact information that you received in our introduction, right, that David was talking about. You can, like someone's online right now from our pastoral staff that's online in this, in, in this live event thingy. Uh, there, there's a Zoom meeting after this that where you can talk to someone or you can contact the church. But let's have someone sit down with you, maybe someone from our church. Every believer is a minister here at this church and I'll bet there's somebody that lives near you or is in your profession that you could meet and become friends with and they can explain to you about the power of the resurrection in your life to make you new born again another thing I want to talk to everybody about is I just I get this uh, feeling and, and our elders had that we had a meeting on Thursday night that it's time to get back in shape you know what I mean? Like we all kind of took some time off and, you know, we probably have the pounds to show it. I, I kind of know that to, to be true. And I feel like the hardest part about getting back in shape is uh, getting back in shape. It's like starting again, knowing the pain that's coming, right? And the hardest part of going to the gym is getting to the gym and touching that doorknob. And I think, I think while that's a great metaphor for physical health, it's also a metaphor for spiritual balanced life health. I think we need to do whatever we can to consider coming back to church. I'm not, I'm, we don't, you know, that's not how we keep score here with attendance and all that kind of stuff. I'm doing, I'm, I'm saying this like as a pastor for your soul, okay? That, that if, if the doctor is telling you you're a risk, you know, you're at risk or someone you're loving and close to is at risk, then boy, listen to those doctors. But don't listen to people that make you afraid in, in media or news or whatever. I'm just, what I'm saying is this, is being here at church, I think is important. It's very important. And I think that we're not persecuted. You know, I mean, what we experience is not even hardship. It's just inconvenience. And I think it would be good if you would consider coming to church, especially, you know, if you want, you can work up to it during our Christmas at Grace. Those four weeks in December, we're going to have an amazing experience musically, at least, I can promise you that. <laughs> and I think it would be good for your soul. Come on up here. We've done everything we can. We added the bipolar tokamak uh, super collider flux capacitor something or others to this building. It is safe in here. Please consider coming back. 
wear a mask. I know some people don't want to come back because they don't have to wear a mask. I think you could wear a mask. That's just an inconvenience. That's all it is. Volunteer. Volunteer at Grace. Help some other people come. We're going to try to go to two services as soon as we possibly can. And we're making those decisions this week. So, but would you do that? I know it's gotten easier to stay home and let the kids stay in their pajamas. Let's, let's get them suited up. Let's make the drive that we used to make and it wasn't that big a deal. And now it's kind of longer. Let's do that. Let's get back in here if you can. And it's safe for you. Now, my last kind of little family thing is that at the end of the year, uh, we, we, we desperately, we want, no, that's not, I'll tell, I always tell you the truth when it comes to giving. We need end of year giving to be significant this year. We're not desperate. We're doing quite well. Thank you very much. Our giving's down about 8%, but our expenses are down about 10%. So, you know, like a lot of companies right now. But this is, this is true to just the way churches and nonprofits live. December is almost like a retail business where December comes in, then all things are good for the rest of the year. If December doesn't come in, all things are hard for the rest of the year. Would you consider Grace Covenant Church being coming or being the first of your priority for uh, generous giving this year? We would much appreciate it. We're going to need that going forward. In the first four weeks of January, I'm going to tell you about the next chapter in Grace Covenant Church's life, and I think you'll be pretty excited about it. You'll, it'll you'll turn you up. So consider Grace Covenant Church, end of your giving. Put us at the top of that list, would you? Thank you for coming. Thanks for watching. Thanks for being here. We appreciate that. We have donuts and coffee outside again. You guys are dismissed. Let the ushers dismiss you. I'll see you out in the courtyard. Thanks, Thanks for staying in there. <laughs>